Hello, welcome to our Axiom Catalyst episode on rare diseases. Today, we are joined by John James, the CEO of Sickle Cell Society. This interview is being hosted by myself, Akash Bhattacharji, a consultant and Anna Grasa, an engagement director at Axiom Healthcare Strategies. In this discussion, we take a patient-centric lens to better understand the diagnosis and treatment journey of sickle cell disease, the impact of this disease on lives of patients in the UK, as well as current challenges in the clinical journey. We also discuss the outreach work done by the Sickle Cell Society, including key initiatives such as the Hackney Engagement Project, Nice London, and the translatory impact of this work done at the local scale, on national and even international levels. Thank you so much for coming to our interview today, John. We are really privileged to have you. I do want to start off by asking you about the work that you do as as Sickle Cell Society, as well as your Hackney Engagement Project. Okay. Thank you very much, Akash and Anna. So uh, I'm going to tell you a little bit about our work that we've done in East London, which is the reference to Hackney. So in 2017, we set up a social prescription model called uh, Hackney Young People, uh, Children and Young People's Mentoring Scheme. And it was set up as part of an innovation with the then health service called a, um, a clinical commissioning group. Because Hackney and most parts of London has lots of sickle cell patients. So what was that model and why was it successful? Well, it was a model where peers, these are successful individuals living with sickle cell, support other young people and young adults living with sickle cell who are finding challenges in their life. Those challenges might be to do with school, it might be to do with further education, it might be to a range of things. But the mentors provide support, and that includes emotional support, advice about building up their self-esteem, advice about the condition and how you might manage the condition, all based on peer experience. And it was so successful. And how do you measure success? Because it was both qualitative and quantitative. We measured success on what it meant for the young people being involved in the project. And probably 99.9% of them said it did make a difference to their self-esteem, their understanding of sickle cell, how to manage sickle cell better in difficult circumstances. And the consequence of uh, all of that, the byproduct of all of that, was that it saved the NHS money. We were able to identify that it saved the NHS money. So how did it save the NHS money? It saved the NHS money by virtue of reduced bed stays, reduced attendances at A&E and so forth. So in summary, the pilot was demonstrating good effect for people who live with sickle cell, good effect for their families, good effect for the NHS. And most of the the majority of the patients who were mentored were from referrals from healthcare professionals. So the vast majority would have been, look, I've got this young boy or young girl, age so-and-so, 
And she's really, you know, she hasn't got any siblings. She might have siblings, but, you know, some of them don't. And and it would really be helpful. So they were referrals. They And the vast majority came from healthcare professionals. But there was a, a proportion of self-referrals, principally from parents, and also referrals from individuals themselves who would have been 18 or over and who uh, decided. So successful scheme. And given that that was 2017, it has taken us such an incredibly long time to convince, even though the evidence is there, to convince the commissioners of services who pay for these services, because we can't afford to pay it ourselves, to actually invest in the service. So they thought it was great. And they said, what we should do is invest and spread this service across all of the East London boroughs. It's clinically led, so we have mentors who appears, but there is also a lead clinician. And I, and I suppose these are some of the biggest challenges that you are facing in your day-to-day work, really improving the day-to-day living of these patients, as well as highlighting the disparities in care, which ultimately does lead to delays in getting new treatments as well. That's absolutely correct. I mean, it is a challenge. We're an organisation of about 11 whole time equivalent people, including myself. So it is hard work. But, you know, in terms of our impact, I know we're focusing on the peer mentoring programme, but we've had impact over the years. So it was the Sickle Cell Society working with clinicians that produced the standards of care for people with sickle cell that is used globally. You know, the Greek government wrote to us and said, We'd really like to translate this in Greek. They're so good. So we led on the paediatric and adult standards during COVID. We were the ones who were providing the leadership about what COVID and sickle meant and working with clinicians to look at the impact of COVID, both psychosocially as well as sort of deaths and uptake of vaccinations. And so we've done all of that work. So just to go even further back, the screening programme. So in this country, we have a national screening programme for every child being screened. France doesn't have that, and France has similar numbers to us. The United States, where you are, doesn't have a national program. It's all left to determine what they're doing. So so I think we should be very proud of those things because it was the Sickle Cell Society who pushed for those initiative and campaign for those things. So, so the point that I'm sharing with you is our impacts on local schemes like the peer mentoring program. There's also wider impacts, whether you live in the Northwest, the Midlands or the South of the country. And that sort of beautifully answers my question, which is going to be how the work at the local level does affect the national work that we do, and in this case, internationally as well. Could you help me get a sense of, you know, how many patients there are in London overall? And we are, as you said, you know, you talked about expanding the work that's been done in Hackney to other regions of London as well. Does Do other London boroughs have um, similar initiatives? No. So let me answer each of those questions. The only children and young people's peer mentoring scheme is in East London. And we're we're running that now. And we are in negotiations about securing the right level of funding for that. We would like to extend it not only across London, but to other parts of the country, like the example I gave you for the Northwest or the West Midlands. That's what we would like to do. But Akash, 
cash, that requires engagement and communication from the people who are going to commission it. And here we are, 11 old time equivalent people. So the challenge of capacity and capability, I can't do it all, all myself. So the answer to your question is that we know what we would like to do in terms of extending. It is only the East London. So it's not Hackney, it's all of East London. That's where the peer mentoring programme is working at the moment. But our plan is to extend it. But to extend it, it needs communication, commitment and engagement, and more importantly, funding from those commissioners to address the health inequalities in those other parts of the country. The second question that you asked me was how many people? Now, this is sort of sensitive in in a way. The published data will suggest that there are at least 15,000 people living with sickle cell anemia in the United Kingdom. That's not dissimilar to the numbers in France. Recent work that we've been doing with NHS England and the Department of Health would suggest that it's probably nearer Mm -hmm. 18,000. And we think that that may also be an underestimate because when we used to say, well, it's at least 15,000, there are people who live with sickle cell who don't like Big Brother or information and keep a very low profile. And they might have reasons for doing that. So there'll be a tiny portion of people who are not on registries or uh, there's a general hesitancy to come you know come forward and work with organizations such as you well no i think it's not a hesitancy to come forward to seek treatment i think it's a hesitancy to be on registries or have their information and data collected i think it's more to do with that than reluctance to so it's by saying big brother i meant big data John, I have a question, because given the fact that there are like 15 to 18,000 patients living with sickle cell, how common are sickle cell clinics across the country? Basically, every hospital, major hospital in the United Kingdom and in the devolved nations, so I'm talking about Wales and Scotland, will see somebody with sickle cell. The numbers will vary because there'll be higher concentration. So sickle cell in London is probably 60% of the total amount. Okay, Sickle cell in the West Midlands, which includes Birmingham, will be a high number. Sickle cell in the Northwest will be a high number. Bristol, an old slave port, will be a high number. Cardiff in Wales will be a high number. So it's very dispersed. So if you take Suffolk and Norfolk, There will be people there who live with sickle cell, but the numbers will be smaller in terms of prevalence. So our view as an organisation some years ago, led by me and others, was that we didn't want any hospital calling themselves experts on sickle cell, particularly if they only had sort of 10 or 20 patients and calling themselves specialist centres was just not sensible. So again, from some of our campaigning, the NHS changed its system to be the equivalent I would give is if you've got cancer in the UK, you go to a specialist centre. You don't go to a district general hospital, you go to a specialist centre. Where So now we have 10, to answer your question, question. We have 10 haemoglobinopathy centres across the country. Now, those haemoglobinopathy centres are located in a region. 
So let's take East London because we've been talking about East London no. earlier. So the Royal London Hospital in East London in Whitechapel is the main centre, but its region goes all the way to Essex, where they will have smaller numbers of sickle cell at, you know, South End District General Hospital, for example. But the expectation is that those clinicians at South End link in. So it's a collective uh, group so that they would seek advice from the specialist centres. And there are 10 of those and they're called haemoglobinopathy coordinating centres. And, and the name is in the title. They coordinate red cell uh, services yeah. across large footprints. One of the key challenges really is the lack of awareness of sickle cell on its own. Uh, we often hear, you know, even knowledge among healthcare professionals is low and patients have had to, you know, explain to healthcare professionals about their disease, basic conditions about their disease at a time of major distress to them. This does impact, you know, quality of care in many ways, as well as has knock-on effects on different parts of the system. But I want to get your perspective on this and how really, how adequate are these concerns? They are very serious concerns, Akash, and I will illustrate my answer to your question by referring you, I'm sure you and Anna have read it, to the No One's Listening report, which was, uh, so the Sickle Cell Society runs the secretariat for the all-party parliamentary group. This was a report that was initiated by the Sickle Cell Society. Why was it initiated? Well, we have known for many years that there are preventable deaths, mainly of young people who live with sickle cell in our hospitals. And so there was a young man called Evan Nathan Smith who died at North Middlesex Hospital in really distressing circumstances. And at that point, it was just the tipping point because we knew other people had died. It was just the tipping point to say that this isn't good enough. And we asked the all party parliamentary committee to do a parliamentary inquiry. And they did that inquiry by taking evidence from patients, from carers, from all across the country, from um, healthcare professionals, from organisations like NHS Blood and Transplant, even some industry partners through the Pennyworth Inn as well. So it was very, very comprehensive. And it revealed that there was, to your point, there was still a lack of awareness amongst healthcare professionals about sickle cell. And that would normally manifest itself is if you're admitted, so you have an A&E attendance, which, by the way, most people in giving the evidence said it would be the most awful experience. So 30 minute pain relief of which there are guidance for are not met. There's also evidence of regular evidence wherever you are about prejudice and racism. So you're not really in pain. You're here for another shot of morphine or so. In other words, drug seeking behavior is what they were labeled with. And the no one's listening report, which you, you will have read, highlights the deficiencies in the current system. So, John, my question for you is that has anything changed since the publication of No One's Listening Report? Yes. What has changed? So go back to that question of the legacy. One of the mm -hmm. difficulties we have with our 
you know, small staff is getting the commissioners and, of course, all the reorganisation, all the impact of the pandemic. The legacy that I was referring to is that in years gone by and decades gone by, they've not done anything for sickle cell and they, they probably are not thinking about it. So what has changed is that's why I gave credit to the then Secretary of State to say, you know, this has got to improve. So what has changed is there have been campaigns by NHS England to raise awareness about sickle cell. There is certainly more awareness about sickle cell now. The NHS Race and Health Observatory have commissioned three pieces of work about sickle cell. So things are changing and there are plans. I mean, clearly um, our sickle cell community want to see uh, quicker and sustainable options. But it's clear what has changed is that rather than people ignoring it before, there are conversations taking place about all aspects of the sickle cell care pathway. Just picking up on that point, you know, how can we as different stakeholders of organizations such as yours, care commissioning groups, as well as drug manufacturers and patients better work together. What what I want to understand from you is what are the areas of biggest disconnect between different groups, as well as how can we better work together to overcome them? I mean, the Sickle Cell Society as a national charity has a very long and good history working with the NHS. What's different now is that there's more specificity about working on things that can make a difference for sickle cell rather than words and no action. So, so that is important. We work with a number of support groups across the country and they are important, but not, you know, not everybody is collegiate. So when I mentioned earlier that the sickle space is complex, some of that complexity is to do with values. It's to do with what people want to do by themselves and so forth. But despite that, you know, the groups that we do work with across the country and not only groups, individual patients, mums, dads and young people is is about pushing the agenda forward and um, things are changing and we're pleased that is the case. So we want to push NHS England to use every lever within their gift to help change the agenda. And one example is health inequalities, which is a good example because we work really closely with the health inequalities team at NHS England. And the health inequalities team are, say, into integrated care boards. So they're the new commissioners after all the reorganisation, saying to them, you know, are you taking health inequalities seriously in your area? And, you know, have you thought about sickle cell? What are you doing about sickle cell? So the narrative is beginning to change from that legacy that I described to the question that Anna asked me. Do you think there are some aspects which are currently overlooked in the care of uh, sickle cell patients? You know, yeah, there are some aspects that are challenging. And one of the ones is that there is good evidence to show that if you live with sickle cell, whether you're a child or an adult, there will be um, some psychosocial issues affected with the condition. So for a child, it may be I can't do the same things at the same level as my peers do when they're in school or I can't go swimming because it's too cold on that particular day. So the psychology elements, we 
argue that for those 10 specialist centres, all of them should be able to provide access to psychological services because they have been absent over time. There's also, and we've done work on this, we've produced a guide for employers and schools about sickle cell. They're, They're all on our website. Now, why did we do that? Because today, last night, I was at a school in North London where for the first time they've got two or three young people with sickle cell and they hadn't come across as a school. And this is London. This is London with the biggest population. They hadn't come across anybody with sickle cell. So I ran a session with that school yesterday. So the purpose of us providing a guide for schools and for employers is to do with that lack of awareness. So if you take employers, one of the impacts of sickle cell is that, you know, if you do have a crisis, you might be off work for two or three weeks. You know, on average, it's a sort of two week inpatient stay. And even if you're not admitted to hospital, you're going to be fatigued with your condition. Fatigued can be viewed as, oh, gosh, that person's so lazy, they're so tight, you know, but it isn't laziness. It's just that the effects of the condition and employers, large and small, need to understand that there are ways in which they can support their employees who live with that condition. So, John, my question to you is, like, you were talking about peer-to-peer support, lack of disease awareness about uh, sickle cell among public healthcare professionals, etc. So, How, in your opinion, how initiatives such as the Sickle Cell Warriors or using prominent public figures such as celebrities, for example, to help to raise awareness about sickle cell could actually help to overcome some of the challenges, some of the stigma associated with sickle cell? we have patrons. Now, our patrons are high-profile individuals, some of colour, others not, but they're all high-profile. So Dame Elizabeth Annie Onwu has a huge Twitter following, was the country's first black nurse counsellor for sickle cell, very famous individual. She does a lot, and we've used Elizabeth, I've known Elizabeth for 30 years in, in my career, and she does enormous amount of work. Floella Benjamin is a patron and Floella, uh, for those of a particular age, um, she used to do a sort of programme called Play Away uh, for children. So she's a a celebrity and there are other celebrities. I I just mentioned Elizabeth and um, Floella. There are others. Um, So we have run campaigns. Our most recent one was to encourage more people of colour. So that's mixed race and black people or brown people to donate blood because we make the connection about blood donation and sickle cell and and highlight to people that 98% of all donations come from the Caucasian population. Uh, And that was led by some celebrities and we're doing well with our, it's called Give Blood spread love campaign. So we do, but it's complex. It's it's complex because underneath all of that, there are some celebrities and people who have, it's not stigma, but don't really talk too much about sickle cell. So I think there is scope to do more, but you know, it's clear that in some communities and for some individuals, they don't want to mentioned sickle cell due to the stigma. And I and, and I'll give you an example. I met somebody, this was pre-COVID, at an event that we were running. He had sickle cell and he said, look, John, this is the first time I'm actually 
come into an event with other people with sickle cell. I have it. I don't tell my employees I have it because I'm really private and I don't want people getting. So there are people for, and it may not be stigma. In this case, he had sickle cell. It wasn't something that he was ashamed of, but he didn't want to share it with either his work colleagues or close friends. So John, can I just ask you one question? Because something interesting that you said about blood donations, I know that uh, American Red Cross launched this initiative in order to encourage uh, blood donations among African-Americans, and they offered free sickle cell trait screening as part of this blood donation, and it actually really helped to increase the number of donations from this population. Do we offer something like this also? In no, we don't, we don't, because it, it's clear. So first of all, as an organisation, we don't have the armoury to be testing people for sickle. Our blood donation, it's called Give Blood, Spread Love. Our blood donation is primarily focused on increasing the number of black and brown and mixed race people to donate blood. However, in terms of uh, testing, don't forget, we help create the national screening program. So every child born now, we know um, from not personally, but collective data, the number of people who are carriers and the number of people who live with sickle cell. So there's a logistic issue around testing for sickle cell at the same time. But the other important thing to say, Anna, is that we're always clear. One of the myths for some people not donating blood is that they thought if they were a carrier, and many of them know their carrier status, that they couldn't donate blood. And we say that's a myth. If you're a carrier, you can donate. You can donate. These are very important issues. And I'm just speaking from my young, naive perspective. I know like in DCC textbooks, we learn about the genotype of uh, sickle cell, but we don't even understand much about the experience of these patients and have the knowledge about who can donate blood. And the eligibility is very important for public knowledge, for sure. But I do want to pivot and ask you about managing this, uh, this condition through treatments. You know, we have had a generic drug, which is normally used to manage this condition, hydroxyurea, for a long time. But only very recently, we have had one drug approved in the UK, Crizanlizumab. You know, there are many other exciting developments in the pipeline with gene editing as well. Last year, if you look at inherited blood disorders, in hemophilia, we've had approval of two gene therapies as well as, you know, one in thalassemia. What are your sort of hopes for sickle cell and the treatments landscape going forwards? Well, I think, first of all, the good news, and we touched on this earlier, the good news is that when I joined this organisation 10 years ago and more, there was hardly any significant innovation and development taking place around sickle. We spoke out and said, uh, unashamedly, that we would work with industry to support work around this, not to be in industry's pocket because there's clear rules about how you work with industry. So we're very clear, we're independent, we have our own voice, but we want industry to work with us if they are serious about new treatments. And the good news, therefore, is that there are a number of sickle cell treatments in the pipeline. And that's why I said we know most of the industry partners who are in the uh, rare disease red cell space. And we're excited about that. We're excited about that to the extent that we hope in the summer to have a an event around all of these new planned treatments. 
And clearly, we've seen for other rare diseases, the impact, including cystic fibrosis, uh, the impact of gene therapy. Now, my view is that there will be some degree of caution about new therapies as they come online and are approved. Why? Because it's fair to say that many have some suspicions about new treatments and, you know, they want new treatments, but they want to be assured that they are safe, they have effect and they'll improve one's quality of life. So people are always going to be sort of cautious about that, given what they are receiving at the moment. So there'll probably be an element of that. But it's fair to say gene therapy is being promoted very highly for addressing other rare diseases. So, you know, part of our agenda is wanting to get healthcare professionals people who live with the condition and people who care for people who live with the conditions to have a better understanding of what the impact gene therapy can make for sickle. And we're, 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 we're planning to do that alongside what, what we want at the end of the day is there to be for sickle a menu of options like there is a menu of options for like conditions. That's where we want to be. So it isn't saying that gene therapy will be the best thing since sliced bread. It isn't saying uh, tablet X will be the best thing since sliced bread. It's saying that there should be a menu of choice of options that work for, because not everything is going to work. And you have to remember, even today, there are parents who don't want their children on hydroxycarbamide. Why? Because of the cytotic effects or the myths, the myths about some of those things. We want to ask from the gene therapy perspective, what are the key worries that patients have about gene therapy? You know, gene therapy is, in my lay terms, another form of transplantation. And if you look at the bone marrow transplant, which is the only available curative treatment for young people who live with sickle cell. And and, and if you think about that, it has to be a sibling, first of all, sibling donor. That's the criteria. If you don't have a sibling donor, well, you're not going to make much progress. And certainly for parents that I've talked to who have been affected by graft-host disease and things like that, will say, look, John, if there was this choice that you always talk about, maybe I wouldn't have gone for a BMT. I might have gone for something else. Because so people are worried about the, on what I would call the bone marrow technology, the side effects again, and gross-host disease is a is a significant one. And and then if you think about it, if hydroxyurea doesn't work for you or you can't tolerate it, and if blood transfusions don't work for you as an adult, what choices have you got? You've got crizinolabab, which is still very new. So that's why I talk about a menu of options that are safe, effective, and can be deployed in different ways based on the health circumstances of that individual. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking with you, John. Not at all. My pleasure. My pleasure. Lovely to meet you both.